It is good to be with you again this Lord's Day as we look together at God's Word. And we're thankful to God to come together and to uh, consider this as Reformation Sunday because uh, one of the things that's striking in my own personal testimony is that I remember so many years, uh, even being in ministry, in fact, and not being acquainted with the Reformation. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church when I got saved. I wasn't actually as a child in there. After high school, I was saved and landed in a Southern Baptist church. I didn't have any inkling of an idea of the difference between any of them at that time. But I never heard anything about the Reformation for years and years. I got some information whenever I was in college and seminary, obviously, that would deal with church history. But again, there was, there was just not the emphasis that you should have on such a monumental historic event that literally changed the world. And uh, it is hard to put into words what has happened at that time because we can't fully put our minds around what was happening even in the days of Wycliffe and Luther and Huss and others. But uh, hopefully today we'll get a little glimpse into that. So what I'd like you to do today is open your Bibles with me to actually two portions of Scripture. I'm going to read two to begin with. The first is in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And I want you to open to John chapter 1. And then I would like you also to turn with me to another passage, which is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So two passages. Now we'll come to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the latter part of the message. But I'm going to read both of them for the setting this morning. And I'm going to be talking about the topic, After Darkness, Light. A call to the Reformation. John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. The Word of God says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6. The Apostle Paul writes, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has also shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." 466 years ago in Geneva, Switzerland, John Calvin was preaching twice on Sunday and twice every day alternating weeks. He also gave himself over to the study of the Word of God and exposition of the Word of God for 25 years. He preached 189 sermons in the book of Acts, 65 in the Harmony of the Gospels, 174 sermons in Ezekiel, 159 sermons in Job, 200 in Deuteronomy, 342 in Isaiah, 123 in Genesis, and he had a short time in Judges, 107 in 1 Samuel, 87 sermons in 2 Samuel, and a set of sermons in 1 Kings. And also during the weekdays, he would preach through Jeremiah, Lamentations, the Minor Prophets, and Daniel. It's just a small amount of what John Calvin did. He was born in 1509 in a time of extreme poverty in a very harsh and brutal environment. Immorality was rampant in those days. In fact, some of the uh, immorality was lawful. There were laws that allowed for things like that. Medical needs were met with very primitive approaches and disease flourished. There was no running water, no indoor plumbing, and there was no hope. 
no hope. It was a very dark, dark time. But through the preaching of Martin Luther, and of course even the precursors to the Reformation, like John Wycliffe, the glorious gospel of Christ alone was shining forth. And the word of God was being now printed in the, in the actual languages of the people so they could read the Bible for themselves. It was a monumental change from the dark ages that they'd spent so much time in. It was in this context that John Calvin came. In fact, he had uh, coined the phrase or gave the motto, post tenebras lux, which you may have heard of, which means in Latin, after darkness, light. After 1,000 years of darkness, the light was bursting forth. The light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was coming through the preaching and the exposition of the word of God. But in order to understand just how brilliant this light was and how important it was, we need to really understand just how dark it was. And the dark ages were very dark. That really made up the time of 500 AD to 1500 AD following the collapse of the Roman Empire. And many believe that that was really all that amounted to the dark, age, dark ages, the devastating effects of that fall, both economically, culturally, as far as literary concerns are concerned. And they're also called the Middle Ages. You may have heard them referred that way. It describes that long period where it seems like there wasn't a whole lot of advancement. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church dominated that period of time. But there were some things that were good. There were some things that did happen that are helpful even today. There was the invention of the mechanical watch. There were eyeglasses invented. Uh, there was gunpowder weapons made. And also there was the printing press, which is very important toward the latter part of the Dark Ages, as we all know, with the printing of the Bibles. With that said, however, whenever you and I look into the Dark Ages, most of us would cringe if we had to live in those days because what went on during that time period was nothing short of horrific. Some of the things they would engage in was torture. In fact, if they were trying to get some information from a criminal or someone they wanted a confession from, they would torture you. They came up with very, very inventive ways of creating tremendous pain on you for long periods of time, such as one of those that's called the thumb screw, which you would place your finger or your thumb in and it would just crank down until you finally couldn't stand it any longer or they would put it on your toes and do the same thing. Extreme executions were also common in those days. Uh, criminals would be executed usually in very painful ways. There was the guillotine, as you're most familiar with, and it was a quick and painless way to die, but that was not usually the way criminals would die. If you were a criminal in those days, or even suspected to be a heretic, which many Christians were, you could have a very prolonged death. And that death would be a horrific way to die. They would talk about being hung and drawn and quartered. For instance, whenever someone was sentenced to that kind of death, they would be dragged to their place of execution. They would be hung to the point of death, but not all the way. And then they would be taken down, disemboweled while they were still alive, and then cut in four portions, quartered, if you will. This is what would happen in those days. But one of the most, probably most popular events that occurred in that time was the Black Death. 
the Black Death, or the bubonic plague, as some have called it. It was a destructive, very destructive pandemic of that time in human history. Many call it the worst in human history. It occurred in the mid-1340s, and it was a disease that infected humans, but it came from fleas. And the bacterial infection was transferred from the fleas that were on the rats, and the rats would then infect the humans. The stomachs of the fleas would come in contact with this particular bacterial infection called Yesirinina pestis. It's called Y pestis for short. And that bacteria would cause the throat of the flea to clog up and to swell up so much so that it couldn't ingest the blood from the rodent that it was on. So in its fit for starvation, it would try to suck the blood up and instead of being able to ingest the blood, it would puke it back into the victim, which would be the rat at that time. And so the bacteria that was in the flea would then be in the, the rodent or the host, and then they would be infected, and then they would infect more fleas, and then it would just cycle, cycle through and cycle through. Eventually, all the rodents would die, and then the fleas would look for more hosts, and that would be the humans, and then they would get infected with that horrible, horrible disease. It came in three fashions. Bubonic, which was the lymph node system, would swell horrifically. 60% of people who contacted that would die. There was the pneumonic part of the uh, plague that was respiratory infection. If you got that, you were going to die for sure. It was 100% fatal. Then there was the septic infection, which was the blood itself being infected. And if you had that also, you would die. It was 100% fatal. During that time period, 20 million people in Europe died. That's an estimation. During those days, whenever morning would come, a cart would come down the street to collect all the dead that had died the night before. So the point is, is that in those days, it was a dark time, not only culturally, not only uh, as far as economics and also literary speaking, but it was dark because of death. Death literally was everywhere. If you were living in that time, it was very, very uncommon for you not to know someone personally, most likely in your household, that didn't die. As I even shared a few months back in our own church that many of the houses of that day would have coffin doors built into their homes because death literally was so common and so expected that they would be built with coffin doors to allow the the dead bodies to go in and out of the house. It's a horrific thing to think about, that people lived in that context for so very long. People had no idea where the plague came from. I mean, they didn't have the medical technology that we have today. But many of them believed, because of their superstition, that this was God's disapproval of them. And that God was punishing them because of their sin. And some of them believe that the Jews were responsible for the plague because they were considered heretics. And so thousands of Jews were slaughtered during this time because of it. Others took to trying to go through periods of penance where they would actually afflict them on their own selves with pain. So that perhaps maybe it would appease the God who had inflicted them with this horrible disease. The upper class would go into towns and actually punish themselves with leather leather straps that uh, would have bone and glass and metal infused into the leather strap so they could be beaten for 33 and a half days and then they would move from that city to the next to do the same thing over and over and over again, hopefully to appease God from his wrath of the plague. 
But that leads me to the most important and really one of the most profound darknesses of that age, and it was the absence of hope. The absence of the gospel. It wasn't there, at least in most places, as we'll see a little later on. It was obscured by the Roman Catholic Church and its religious practices and its intentional desire to keep the Bible out of the hands of the common person. They would have the Bible in Latin, which was the language of the scholar and the priest, but the common people didn't speak Latin, didn't read Latin, and didn't know Latin. So they couldn't read the Bible. And what they could glean from a church service simply came from what they could see literally on the stained glass windows or of the statues that were in the church. Or maybe perhaps through, through the confessional, they might learn something from the priest. But it was very, very little information. They literally lived in ignorance. And they lived in darkness. And to add to all of that, they had no hope of heaven whatsoever. You have to understand that the Roman Catholic religion kept their people, and still does, in a perpetual state of uncertainty of salvation. I mean, you never fully know if you're truly saved. You never fully know if you're righteous in the sight of God because you never have completed enough merit to get yourself to heaven. And then even if you didn't do enough or didn't confess enough or didn't pay enough indulgences or do enough penance, then you are going to end up in purgatory for some amount of time. So you can see the despair. You can see the darkness. No assurance whatsoever of heaven whenever you would die. And that was one of the reasons why the sales of indulgences really grew exponentially during that time because people were so uncertain about their salvation and the forgiveness of their sins that when someone comes along like Tetzel did and said, listen, if you will pay this or pay that, you can pay for the forgiveness of your sins or you could pay one large sum and you could pay for all the forgiveness of your sins. You can see why the cash was being doled out. I mean, if you knew that, you would probably pay that too if that were true. And that was the reason why Martin Luther, literally, in that context, living in that setting, hated God. He hated him because of the terror of God that he lived under for so long. It was the... The justice of God that was just hanging on top of him that he felt so much even as a priest and knew that he never could fully satisfy the demands of God. He would go to the confession and he would confess his sin, walk away, and in 30 minutes return only to confess more sin, literally driving the priest nuts for what he was doing. Those were dark days, very dark days. But advance with me now 500 years into the future. Let's come to the year 2022, where we are today. It's dark again. In fact, it's very dark. And there's a need for a bright, bright light. There's a need for the gospel. We are living in a day in which evil has been propelled at an unbelievable rate. You almost feel like your head's spinning, don't you? Whenever you turn the news on or read some new article of what's going on in our culture, in our country, you're like, how in the world did we get here so fast? And it seems like it isn't slowing down at all. We're sliding so fast, completely into darkness at breakneck speed. And we're sliding on a very greased platform by the denial of the absolute word of the living God. Let me give you a couple of examples that 
you are familiar with, so I'm not going to go into great detail of them, but one of the most prominent examples of that in our culture here in America is abortion. Abortion. I mean, abortion really would make the black plague look like a cakewalk. I mean, think about it. Here in America right now, we literally torture and dismember and disembowel millions of innocent children in the womb. Just this year in 2022, as of January, since the passing of Roe v. Wade, and thankfully that's been overturned, but since 17 or 1973, there have been 63,459,781 babies slaughtered in America. To put that in perspective, that's 1,295,000 a year or 108,000 a month or 397, uh, 3,597 3, a day or it is also the same amount of population of Texas and California together. That's horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. That's just over 49 years. But do you realize that throughout the world right now, every year, there's 73 million children that are slaughtered? Every year throughout the world. And think about it like this. The safest place on the planet is supposed to be the mother's womb. Yet we go in surgically and torture that child and slaughter that child. And we think we're no worse or perhaps maybe we're better than the dark ages. And then there's the corruption of the governments. Do I have to even ask you, do you believe your government anymore? I mean, do you believe anything they say at all? Anytime they're talking, I just know they're lying. In fact, John MacArthur said on one occasion that if the government were to tell the truth, it would immediately collapse. It's literally full of lies. Nothing but corruption, immorality, and greed. And we're really just receiving exactly what the Bible teaches, that whenever a country does what we have done and rejects the God of the Bible, we are going to experience exactly what we're seeing now. We're going to be given leaders that are corrupt, it even teaches that in the prophet Isaiah. Then consider with me the darkness of the immorality of our age. Right is wrong and wrong is right and two plus two equals five. Fox News now believes it's important to give a woman or rather a man who believes he's a woman the ability to have authoritative commentary. And then there's the drag queens that go to the public libraries and give story time to children. There's the hospitals that believe that gender reassignment surgery is normal. We are living in a Corinthian culture on steroids. Not only to add to that, I mean, we live in a time of saturated digital pornography. I mean, we were talking about it even coming up that you know, it used to be something that you would go down some sleazy aisle to get to or some bookstore in a dark place. But now everyone has it available on their smartphone and every possible evil conjecture and idea that can be thought of by the perverted mind is available at a click. I mean, if you think that's not having a devastating effect on our culture and our young people, then you're living in a very, very naive situation. Honestly, I think we all know this. We live in, in an insane culture. It's astounding how insane it is. 
But because we have forsaken God and turned from his word, what should we expect? It should get dark. We've turned away from the light. We've turned the light off. It should not be bright at all. We are living, as MacArthur said just recently at the uh, Puritan Conference, we're not living in a Christian culture. We're not living in a post-Christian culture. He says we're living in a pre-Christian culture. What he means by that is we're living in the times of Molech, in Baal, where there's been no influence of Christianity. And that's so true. I mean, more and more, you notice that. You notice how the people have no conscience of God anymore. It wasn't too many years ago that a preacher could be standing someone, somewhere and someone would curse and they would say, I'm sorry, pastor. I'm sorry, preacher. I'll watch my mouth. That's not the way it is anymore. It is a culture that has rejected everything that there is about God. And then to add to all of that, you have the mounting and growing hostility against true believers. I was just finishing up some of the details yesterday on this sermon, and I noticed on the news that there was an article that was presented about some protesters that were spotted outside an event where a man was reading the Bible, just reading the Bible, And some of the leftist protesters took the Bible from his hands, tore it into pieces all over the ground, and one of them took a page out of it and ate it. I mean, they hate Christians. Hate them. Like what Paul Washer said, that it's not going to be that you're going to be persecuted because you say you're a Christian. You're not going to be persecuted because you say, I believe Jesus is God. They don't care about any of that. What they do care about is that you say this is wrong, this is right, and that you're not tolerant of their sinful activity. You are a bigot, and they're going to nail you to the wall for it. More and more believers are going to lose their jobs. They're going to be isolated and excommunicated. But then we have to move on from all of that to the other darkness that is in our culture, and that is the church. Yeah, I did say the church. There's darkness in the church. I mean, the visible church in America literally is a mess. It really is. It's doctrinally deficient with zero discernment. Zero discernment. And they most of the time act like the world, worshiping like the world, trying to draw the world by their worship that accommodates all the cultural values. Daily we witness departures from the faith of individuals, of preachers, of churches, that have denied the faith that we once considered precious. The great truths of the Reformation, like Mark referred to, really are a distant flicker in most churches. Many of them have no clue what the Reformation is about. No clue. My mom attends a very large Southern Baptist church in Jacksonville, Florida. They have about 2,500 on a Sunday morning. And I was asking her, I said, well, what did your pastor say about the Reformation? She says, what's the Reformation? They don't know anything about it. They don't even talk about it. You might say, well, that's just history. Why should we talk about it? Well, folks, we're here today because of it. Our faith exists because of it. We are Protestants. And we're part of those who protest against the Roman Catholic doctrine and dogma and practices. And we stand up against the world and the things of the world and believe in the Bible and trust God's word. The vast majority of the churches today, evangelical churches, could not explain to you what justification by faith alone is. 
Much less propitiation. That would be a foreign word. According to Ligonier's 2022 State of Theology survey, the majority of evangelicals today believe that God learns new things and is not immutable. You know what that is? That's Theology 101, and we're missing that. Also, shockingly, the majority of evangelicals believe that man is born innocent and is not affected by the original fall. Or also that the majority of evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. And nearly half of the population of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. And we wonder why the church is in such a mess. To add to that, 37% believe gender identity is a matter of choice. These are evangelicals, professing evangelicals. And 28% believe homosexuality is okay. In that same statement of theology, it said this, the survey reveals that Americans increasingly reject the divine origin and complete accuracy of the Bible with no enduring plumb line of the absolute truth to conform to. U.S. adults are also increasingly holding to unbiblical worldviews related to human sexuality. In the evangelical sphere, doctrines including the deity of Christ and the exclusivity of Jesus as well as the inspiration and authority of the Bible, are increasingly being rejected. There's only one way to, to solve this problem. There's only one way out of this. Only one. And that's reformation. It's not going to come by another president. It's not going to come by the midterms. It's going to have to be a reformation. It's just that dark. And literally grows darker every day. The, the light is dim. It's very dim. We need to go back to those doctrines of the Reformation. And not just go back to them academically and say, well, we believe these things. But to go back to them in the sense that they affect our very lives. Daily affect our very lives. I mean, we need men and women of the same caliber of Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Wycliffe and all the others, John Huss and others, that we could go down list after list after list. And we do forget, by the way, the wives of men like Martin Luther, the wives of men like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I mean, these ladies who stood behind these men as they stood against the, the, the government and the authority of the Roman Catholic religion or even the liberalism of the Baptist of Charles Spurgeon's day, God praised those women because, listen, they were needed, I grant you. So what are those things we need to go back to? Obviously, sola scriptura, that's missing, isn't it? I mean, that means scripture alone. Secondly, sola gratia, or sola gratia, which is grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christos, which is Christ alone. And sola Deo gloria, which is for the glory of God alone. And the point is, is that all of these are not just you know, simple statements that define the Reformation commitment, these come out of an understanding that the Bible gives us the only true, accurate message for salvation and that it is only through faith in Christ alone that you and I can be saved by God's grace. It's tragic today that so many in the churches don't even see the importance of that. They don't see the importance of it at all. 
Well, there's two things I think we need to do in order to bring back, if you will, a reformation. And we all know, and I know you do, that the reformations are not man-made. We're talking about a God-made reformation, as was the case in the reformation of Martin Luther's day. You could call it revival. I mean, that's what the reformation was. It was a revival of the truth, a revival, no doubt, of the power of the Spirit of God in the church, a revival of the preaching and teaching of the Word. All of that was all there. But in order for us to have what they had, we're going to have to go back and do what they did. And the first thing is you need to recognize the problem. They recognized the problem. They saw the darkness. And the problem is the darkness. And it was very dark. When people often think of the Reformation, what often comes to mind is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And there's nothing wrong with that. The great battle against the Roman Catholic Church was indeed that. There was the fact that they believed that justification or being made righteous came by the merit of the church or by what you did through the church or the sacraments. It was you and the church that brought salvation. But the Reformation said, no, it's not that at all. Justification by faith comes by faith in Christ alone apart from works. So it is indeed true that it would be very important to recognize that the Reformation's primary goal was to restore justification by faith alone apart from works. Some historians see this as the key to understanding the Reformation. In fact, many of the Reformers talk of it in glowing terms, and rightly so. Luther himself declared that if you do not believe this, we're in serious trouble because justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin said that justification by faith alone is the main hinge on which religion turns. But it might come as a surprise to you that Martin Luther did not consider sola fide or faith alone, justification by faith alone, as the primary and most important thing in the Reformation. He did not. What he believed was the most important was grace alone. Grace alone. Why? His point was simple, really. You can't have faith without grace. You can't have Christ without grace. You can't do all to the glory of God without grace. And another way to say that is you can't have the Bible without grace. So what he was doing is driving it back home to the sole need of man, which is grace unmerited favor that God has to grant in order for the sinner to be saved. What Martin Luther meant by grace was much more than what we think of. We think of, well, it's a gift. It's unearned. It's not something we work for. And those things are all true. When we think of grace, we probably quote Ephesians 2, 8, where it tells us, therefore, by grace you have been saved, not of works, right? We get that. We understand that. But that's not really what he had in mind. He understood that and he did believe that, but that's not what he meant by grace alone. What he meant is the foundational, fundamental beginnings of salvation are by grace of God or grace alone. This is what brought him to write his book, The Bondage of the Will. And of all the books that he wrote, 50 plus books, he said that The Bondage of the Will was the most important book that he wrote. Because it dealt with the very issue that was the heart of the Reformation, he would say, and was the foundational issue that needed to be addressed. He understood that. And he was fully committed to it. 
And what he would say is this, is that, that if you don't believe that you need the grace of God to free the will of man to believe, then you don't understand the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And what he was saying is this, is that if you believe that there's one inkling of the movement of man by the freedom of his will to choose Christ apart from God's grace alone, then man gets the glory for what happened here. It's like the modern day view of salvation. God's done everything he possibly can. He sent Jesus to die on the cross because he loves you so very much and he misses you and he wants a relationship with you, right? And so he did all of that great work and now he sits up in heaven and he's like, please come, please come, please come. And he's waiting on your will. He's waiting on you to choose. And he's hoping that you will choose. And finally, for some reason, somebody chooses and comes. And so what Martin Luther would say is, well, the problem with that is this. Ultimately, when you get to heaven, it is not the grace alone that you were saved for the glory of God alone. Because man gets some glory. I mean, Jesus did everything he could, but I finally pushed the button. I opened the door. I made the choice. I came. So Martin Luther began to expound on the topic of the bondage of the will and that you and I need to understand that the will of man, apart from God's marvelous grace, is bound in sin and listen to this, unable to respond to the call of the gospel. Therefore, what he would say is this, is that because of the bondage of the will, all the expectations of the Roman Catholic Church to do and not do and to be and to participate in was ineffectual because man can't do anything at all to save himself. That's where he was going with this. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, wrote about the bondage of the will. He said this, the bondage of the will is the embodiment of Luther's Reformation conceptions, the nearest to systematic statement of them that he ever made. It is the first exposition of the fundamental ideas of the Reformation in a comprehensive presentation. It is therefore, in a true sense, the manifesto of the Reformation. The point is, is like we said, it's not justification by faith alone that was the manifesto. It is indeed the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will. Now, regarding the debate that occurred, I can't go into all the details today because it was a long sermon this morning. I don't want to take you all the way through all of that again for some of you. But the point is, is that there was a great debate that came as a result of this. I mean, Erasmus, who was really a scholar, he was Catholic, but he was a scholar. He was considered one of the greatest scholars of that time. He was responding to Martin Luther's teachings about the bondage of the will, and he wrote his book called The Freedom of the Will. He was on the opposite side. And he believed that a man could choose of his own abilities, if you will, to come to Christ or, if you will, to advance toward eternal life. In his own words, he defines free will this way. It is, and I quote, the power of the human will by which a man can apply himself to the things which lead to eternal salvation or turn away from them. He said this, that the power of free choice was damaged but not destroyed in the fall. He would go on later to say that the will cannot be powerless. 
Because after all, God commands us to do these things and exhorts us to do certain things and warns us not to do certain things. So why would there be all the admonitions and all the warnings and all the commands if we can't do it? And he would say the will can't be powerless. It must have some ability. He went on to say in his own writings, the will is puny and it may require some assistance from God. But the will can contribute, he said. It can contribute. It's extremely small, he admitted, and exceedingly trivial. But nevertheless, it's real. Martin Luther would say, no. Because if there's anything at all that man does that he gets credit for, God doesn't get all the glory. And if it is anything that man does that he has any part in whatsoever that can be accredited to him, then it's not by grace alone. You see his point? And he drives this home over and over again. If you've ever read the writings of Erasmus and Luther and they're debating back and forth, in some ways we would consider it rude today. They called each other names. On one occasion, Martin Luther talked about, you know, of all the books that I have read, yours is one of them talking about Erasmus that I will not use for toilet paper. I mean, that's the way they talked. And uh, they were very, very straightforward. And he considered Erasmus, yes, a worthy opponent, and he was a scholar. But he also believed that Erasmus thought the whole doctrine of the bondage of the will was one of those peripheral things that we should be, just be over at some table somewhere discussing. And that it really didn't have any effect on the church or Christianity or salvation at all. That's just one of those topics that's a secondary issue. Martin Luther said, no, 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 that's not true. He said, it's not only not a secondary issue, it is the issue. It is the issue. Because it's defining whether or not God gets all the glory or whether man gets the glory. Now, in our day and age, I think we know this. In our day and age, we live in a time where men and women today in churches believe in the unlimited autonomy of the free will of man. That man can do anything he wants to do free of any influence whatsoever. R.C. Sproul calls it the humanist view of the will. He said, sadly, it's what really occupies the church nowadays. And whenever you begin to address the free will in some circles and you say that you don't believe man has a free will, and that's a loaded term and I'll explain it in a few moments. But when you say that, man, all kind of hostility mounts. You'd think you, you attack some god somewhere. You know, oh my goodness, you know, you can, you can attack anything you want to do, but don't tell me I don't have a free will. Well, Martin Luther would tell you you don't. John Calvin would tell you you don't. Jonathan Edwards would tell you you don't. And I'll go as far as to say this, Jesus will tell you you don't. How do we explain this? Well, I can't go into all the details. You can read those books for yourself, and I would encourage you to go through them. Most importantly, we'll go through some scriptures because they are most important. Luther himself was straightforward on this. He said this, we are by nature children of wrath. By nature, what he meant by that, by nature, we are sinners deserving of the wrath of God. And he said, we are slaves to sin and slaves to Satan. And it is only by God's unmerited favor whereby man will have any ability whatsoever to please God. Otherwise, 
He has no freedom whatsoever. Now, one of the things that is often brought up whenever you bring this up is that people say, well, if you say that, then what you're telling me is that we're all robots and we have no choice in anything whatsoever. And we're just whatever God determines is what God determines. And we are just um, we have no free will or whatever. And we're robots. Well, Luther would reject that. He actually wouldn't believe that. He would tell you that he believes that you do have the ability to make a choice. And there's a big difference here because every single human on this planet, whether saved or lost, has the ability to make choices. Now notice what I said here. Everybody has the ability to make a choice. But I didn't say your choice is free. But we all make choices, right? You chose to come here today. You chose to get up this morning. You chose to perhaps eat something. You chose to dress a certain way. You chose to sit where you're sitting. There are thousands of choices that we make every day. Martin Luther said this, and I quote, It should be recognized that Luther leaves room for a certain kind of human freedom. Free choice, he admits, is allowed to man only with respect to what is beneath him, not what is above him. On the other hand, in relation to God or in matters pertaining to salvation or damnation, a man has no free choice, but is a captive subject to the slave, subject and a slave either of the will of God or the will of Satan. This is an often repeated distinction he wrote in Table Talk. We are not able to do anything that is good, as I'm quoting Luther here, we are not able to do anything that is good in divine matters. He that will maintain that man's will is free or is able to do or work anything in a spiritual case, be they ever so small, denies Christ. Yet I confess, he says, mankind has free will, but only to milk cows and to build houses. And all he meant by that is, look, we have the ability to do a lot of things in our choice, right? That have no effect on our spirituality or our access to God. But when it comes to you and I accessing God, choosing Christ, following him, we don't have that ability on our own. We don't have that. John Calvin said it this way. If you mean by free will that man has the ability to choose what he wants, then, of course, fallen men has a free will. Now, if you listen to his statement there, you'll get what he means. He says, if you mean by free will that man has the ability to choose whatever he wants, then, of course, fallen man has a free will. And that is the key. He went on to say, but if we mean that fallen man or man in his fallen state has the power or the moral ability to choose righteousness, then free will has gone way too far and free will be, will be too grandiose a term to apply to fallen man. And what he's telling us is this, is that you are free to do whatever you want. The question is, what do you want? What defines that, right? And Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest work ever written on this, and it's entitled, the freedom of the will. If you want to read one that you can spend some time on to get some help with it, read Jonathan Edwards' work. The Bondage of the Will of Martin Luther, excellent, obviously. John Calvin's works are great on it, but Jonathan Edwards probably trumps all of them. Brilliant, brilliant mind. He talked about this, and I'm going to sum up what all, the entire book says, okay, in just a few statements. I'm going to take the entire arguments of Jonathan Edwards 
And this has nothing to do with my intelligence, okay? <laughs> that guy's brilliant. But I, I sum it up this way. All that he said, you are free to choose, but your choice isn't free. You're free to choose whatever you want, but your choice isn't free. There's not a single choice that any of us made here today that wasn't influenced by something. And the strongest inclination of your heart at that given moment is what, de what determines your choice. You know, it is whatever you have the strongest desire for at that very moment is what's going to determine your choice. So there is no such thing as we talk about today, free will, because free will means that, as the humanist would believe, that there's nothing external or internal that manipulates or causes me or influences my decision. I'm just a free, autonomous being, and I can do whatever I want to do, regardless of the influences. That's not what the Bible teaches, and frankly, that's not even what logic teaches. And what Jonathan Edwards was saying is this, you can do whatever you want to do, but the issue is what is it that you want to do and why do you do what you want to do because of your nature, because of your nature. He made a distinction between natural ability and moral ability. This is key. We have natural abilities and we have moral abilities. And our natural ability is this. We all have the ability to think. We all have the ability to reason. We all have the ability to stand up, to sit down, to sing, not to sing, to eat, not to eat, to go spend time with a friend or a relative or a loved one. We have all of those natural abilities to do those things, but we cannot fly like a bird. All right? and, I, and I don't mean in a plane. I'm talking about like a bird flies, you know, jump off the building and flutter your arms and you're flying off. But you can't do that. You can try it. But I can guarantee you, because I know your nature well enough and your natural abilities, you're not going to fly. You're going to fall. And then you can't swim like a fish in the ocean and breathe the water the way a fish does. You don't have gills, right? So we all would be willing to recognize, as Jonathan Edwards points out, that everybody has natural abilities, but those natural abilities are limited by your nature. So is the same with your moral abilities. Your moral abilities, you have moral ability. Yes, you can choose to lie or not to lie. You can choose to murder or not murder. You can choose to do good or not do good. You can choose to help your neighbor or not help your neighbor. You can do all of those things, but there are certain moral things you can't do because of your nature. And your nature defines that for you. It fences it, if you will. It stops you from going so far. And one of the things you can't do because of your moral inability is you can't do what is right perfectly all the time. You will always sin until the Lord returns. Why? Because you have a nature. This, as Martin Luther said, bent. Bent toward sin. Bent toward evil. You come out of the womb sinning, right? None of us in here who have children had to teach our children to do wrong. None of us did. It comes natural. Why? Because that's our nature. That's what we do. We do it very natural. What we have to teach is to do the opposite of that, which is to do good and to obey. And whenever it comes to obeying God and his word from a genuine heart of worship, the only way that can happen is by God's grace. That's the only way that can happen. The Bible is very clear on that. Now, we know what Martin Luther says. We know what John Calvin says. We know what Jonathan Edwards says, but they're not the authority. They're helpful, but they're not the authority. 
The only authority that we can really claim that should move us one way or the other is the word of the living God. And like I told you before, not only do these men support the ideology or the, the idea that there is the bondage of the will, but Jesus himself did. Paul the apostle did. And we have to go to the other soul of the Reformation to find that, and that's the sola scriptura. We have to go through the Bible alone to find out this truth. So let's turn again to John 1, if you're still there. In John 1, we start there. I'm going to go through a couple of passages with you today, and just to help you to see this. In John 1, verse 4 and 5, there's a lot in this text, but we'll just highlight a couple of things. John 1, verse 4, in him was life, referring to Christ. In Christ was life. And by the way, the word was there should not be understood in the sense of was, and he doesn't have it now. This is what they call an imperfect verb of imi, which means that in him was continually in the past life. He's talking about his eternal nature is the idea. In Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The life of Christ, the perfect life of Christ, is the light of men. It is the truth of God being revealed to men. It says in verse 18 of the same chapter that Jesus Christ is the exegesis of God. In other words, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to understand God, look at Jesus. If you want to see how God responds, what he thinks, how he acts, look at Jesus. He is the exegesis. He is the sermon. He is the expository sermon of who God is. That's Romans, or excuse me, John 1.18. But here in this text, notice what it says in verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness... And the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, some translations you probably have, have the word overtake. The Greek word, katalambano, very popular word in the New Testament. It's a compound word. It has lambano, which means to receive, and the word kata in front of it, which intensifies it. But what's interesting about this word is it can be translated overtake, or it can be translated to understand or to grasp. And the only way you know how it is to be understood is by its context. Now, some commentators take the view, and some translators have taken the view, that in verse 5, what is meant by this is the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. In other words, it's like the idea of you being in a dark room, and then someone sets a candle up here lit. The darkness can't overtake the light. The light is going to go forth no matter what. Now, that's true. I'll agree with you with that. In fact, the revelation of Christ on this planet, darkness can't stop it. It's not stoppable, right? No matter how dark it gets. But I personally believe that that's not what John has in mind here. I believe he has the other definition in mind, as is translated by the authorized version, which is comprehend or understand. And the reason why I say that is, is it seems like the context supports that. Now, verse 9 says of the same chapter, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So here we're talking about the light of understanding going into the man's mind, if you will. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Again, there's the idea of understanding him. And then also in verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Uh, this idea of receiving, understanding, knowing seems to flow right with the whole word, katalambano. And the point I'm trying to bring to your attention is this, is that the light comes into the world, and listen to this, the world of lost men don't understand it. Okay, we're not, we're not talking about whether or not they're smart enough. 
the greatest of PhDs cannot understand this. John 3, turn there for a moment. John 3, 19. It says this, and this is the condemnation or this is the judgment. John 3, 19. That the light has come into the world. Same light he's talking about. Christ and the revelation of truth in Christ. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil, listen to this, hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You know what he's telling us there? He's telling us exactly what Jonathan Edwards said. That men do exactly what they want to do. And they don't want to come to Christ because they love their sin. And they don't want their sin exposed. That's why you and I get into a whole lot of trouble when we as believers start pointing those things out. People don't like that. You are the Christ, if you will, in the world. You are the body of Christ. And when you start saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, you need to repent, then you're pointing out their sin. You're the light that just showed up and they hate it. They hate the light. The point is, is that these men love darkness rather than light. And they cannot come and do not want anything to do with Christ because they love their sin. Look at chapter 12, John 12, verse 35. This is the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. He's about to wrap that up and he's going to move on now to some private time with his disciples. But he's fixing to pronounce judgment on Israel, the Jewish leaders. In chapter 12, verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Now here in this context, he's using the same word, katalambano, for translated overtake. And in this context, I believe that's exactly right. Because what he's telling us is, you need to, you need to respond to the light you have now. Because if you don't, the darkness that is in you is going to overtake this light. In other words, if you continue to reject what revelation God is giving you right now, he said the darkness will overtake you and it will be, in his words here, permanent. Permanent. He goes on and says here in verse 36, while you have the light, believe in it and you will become sons of light. Well, what did, what did they do? Well, it says after this, Jesus spoke and departed from them and hid himself from them. That is one of the strangest things in the Bible, but you see what's happening here as you read further. This is the judgment of God on these people. Jesus hid from them. Then verse 37, and although they, he had done so many miracles and signs in front of them, they did not believe. This is a fulfillment of prophecy according to verse 38. Then verse 39 says, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should come and believe and see, unless they should understand with their hearts in turn. Here's the context of a group of people, literally, that cannot believe, cannot see, cannot understand. They don't have the ability to. God has literally abandoned them. Abandoned them. Now this here is severe, permanent, eternal judgment on these Jews here. Okay? But the same condition resides in the sinner. And I'll show you what I mean. A couple of verses that you know well, and I'll just read them to you. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The word can is the Greek word dunamis. It means ability. 
It's the word we get dynamite from or power. And the point is, is that the natural lost man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And the reason why he does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, according to this verse, is he cannot know them. It's outside his ability. You see, he doesn't have the ability to know this. Let me show you another one. Look at John 8. You're in John, right? Turn to John 8. Gospel of John, verse, chapter 8, verse 42. John chapter 8, verse 42. Verse 42 says, Jesus talking to the Jews again, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Then he asked this question, verse 43, Why do you not understand my speech? Now, Jesus would know why, right? Surely he would. Well, he does because he answers it. Verse 43, why do you not understand my speech? Listen to this, because you are not able to listen to my word. He did not say because you are unwilling. No, no, no. He says you're not able. This is an ability problem. This is a nature problem. You don't have the ability to hear Why? Look at verse 47. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. You don't have the ability to hear because you're not of God. Your your ears are not open. Someone could be speaking to you all day long and calling on you to repent and turn from your sin and embrace Christ, but you can't hear it. You can't hear it. Here's another one, Romans 8, verse 7. It says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, or the fleshly lost mind is hostile against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, here it is, nor indeed can it be. It's not possible. It's against the natural ability and the moral ability of man. He can't do it. He can't. It even says in that verse, verse 8, so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God not will not but cannot big difference they cannot now Paul talked about this in a different way in Ephesians 2 you know this he says in Ephesians 2 1 and following that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and there are people who would like to do all kind of hermeneutical gymnastics to get around that They'll make dead something other than dead. But I grant you, whether you're looking at the Greek or the English in this text, the word dead means dead. And you are dead in your sins. And when you talk about someone being dead, what we're talking about is not annihilation, not that you don't exist. Or not that you can't even do anything. Because in the text, the dead people walk. It says this in the text, in which you once walked according to the prince and the power of the air, and you conduct yourselves in the lust of your flesh, and you fulfill the desires of your own flesh. In other words, these dead people are doing something where if they're not dead, but they are dead, then how are they dead, right? Well, they're not dead to their sin. They're dead in their sin. And they are driven by their desires, and they fulfill their lust and their desires because that's what they want to do. But they're dead to God. They're dead to spiritual things. They're dead to the call of the gospel. They're dead to truth. They can't hear. They can't respond. It's like going into a morgue and you walk in there where the bodies are and you can say, listen, guys, let's go to lunch. And no one's going to get up. 
You can poke and prod, you can invite, you can send, you can have a couple of hymns of invitation. You can say, just as I am, 40 times. No one's getting up. They're dead. And the point is, they cannot respond to your physical calls because they're physically dead. Here is the spiritually dead person, spiritually dead to God. They cannot respond to the things of God. Period. Romans 6 tells us not only are we dead, but we're slaves to sin. And the word slaves here, doulos, means exactly what it sounds like. You are a slave to the master. And in those contexts, it wasn't like we think about today. We have an employer and we go to work and we work and then we leave and we do our own thing. No, no. If you were a slave, you were owned by your master and your master told you what to do. He told you what to do to get up, when to get up, when to go to bed, when to eat, what to eat, what to do, how to work, whatever. You were told to do everything as a slave. And this is the same for our situation as a lost person. We are slaves to our own sin. Slaves to our own sin. This darkness Martin Luther knew about in his day. And he understood that this darkness really was essential to understanding so that you understood grace alone. Let me show you something else that will help you see this even more in a more profound way. And that is in John chapter 6. Look at this with me. John 6. John 6 verse 36. It says this. John six thirty six. but I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Now, this is Jesus who has fed the 5,000. He's done miracles and wonders, and yet they don't believe. Verse 37, but then Jesus reminds them and himself, I'm sure, that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes I will by no means cast out. In other words, the perfect plan of God's sovereign redemption is going on exactly as planned. And by the way, you don't believe, and the reason why you don't believe is because you weren't given by the Father to the Son. That's why it is. The reason why these here who saw the miracles, witnessed the power of God, ate the actual fish and the loaves, did not believe were because they were not given to Jesus. And then in verse 38 and following, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. And I will raise it up the last day. The point is, all that the Father gives me, I will not lose anyone. Some have tried to say that this all that the Father gives me is everybody. But that's not the point. Because if it were everybody, then he would raise everybody up the last day to life. And that would mean universalism. That's not what it's teaching. The only ones that are raised up in the last day here in this text are the ones that he will never lose. And the ones that he will never lose are the ones that come. And the ones that come are the ones that were given to him by the Father. And here's the last phrase I'd show you in verse 44. If there's any verse in the Bible that speaks clearly to the bondage of the will, it's this verse. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word can means ability. Can come. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody gets saved, no matter how free their will is, unless God draws them. And every free person in this world apart from Christ, will freely do this, walk away from the gospel and walk right into their sin and stay there freely, willingly, lovingly, stay put. It is only by the grace of God that the will is changed and transformed by the great work of regeneration. 
That's how it changes. By the way, this whole topic of freedom of will, you know, the whole humanistic view of the freedom of the will that's predominant in the evangelical church today, this is the reason why we have the seeker movement. You know that, right? This is the reason why we have the blue lights and the fog machines. This is the reason why we have the dumbing down of the doctrine, the eliminating of the offenses. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about judgment. Don't give me any of that Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of the angry God. That offends me and makes me nervous. I don't want any of that at all. And the reason why is because we believe, I say we, the evangelical church believes, that we need to push the right buttons to get the will of man that is free to respond. And if we do anything that would prohibit that, then we're prohibiting someone from getting saved. Listen, you can preach the gospel as hard as you possibly can, and if God is saving them, you can't stop them. That's like saying, you know, the guy was just resurrected, but I forbid that. You're not going to stop that. Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb. No, you must remain dead. No, 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 no. You can't stop God's regeneration. And for, for you and I to even think that we need to help God alone by minimizing the message and dumbing it down so the sinner can respond with his free will, we have missed the whole point of grace alone for the glory of God alone. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a number of people that are going to find out that they really messed up on this. And they're going to find out that all of their techniques and their their seeker-sensitive worship services and all the stuff that they've done literally did not have any effect whatsoever on the power of the gospel. And it does not at all. If anything, all it does is confuse people and make them think they're saved when they're not. Well, I've got one last point, and this one comes quick. We must recognize the problem, and the problem is the darkness of the human heart and the bondage of the will. Until we get that straight, folks, we're not going to be calling out to God to save anybody. You know, it's kind of like this. You know, people talk about, uh, well, we don't pray for the lost enough. Well, I wonder why we don't pray as much as we should. You know, the reason why is because we really don't believe they're in bondage as much as they are. We think they just need a little encouragement. But what they need is a supernatural act of God. And if God doesn't act, they're not coming. So you and I need to be praying. Because the only thing that's going to change this is God's work, not us. So we move from the problem and recognizing the problem to the return to the power. Returning to the power. I told you the dark ages were dark, and they were. The human heart is darker, as Martin Luther correctly identified but, and there is a great need for a bright light to penetrate the human heart that is dark so that it can be overcome and that a true reformation can happen and that men and women can be saved. And the gospel will go forth as long as it's clearly preached and not compromised and watered down. And God can use that message, that message of Christ to create faith. That's what he's chosen to do. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. You know, with the Dark Ages, where was God in the Dark Ages? It seems like, you know, you have the early church, the church fathers. And we have a couple other incidences. The Roman Empire collapses. We go into the dark time. And then we don't hear anything about the gospel again until Martin Luther or John Wycliffe shows up. And it's been dark for a thousand years. And some have asked the question, well, where was God? Was there anybody getting saved? Was there any light anywhere Was God's grace extended anywhere during those dark days? In fact, yes. I don't know if you know this, but Martin Luther was not the first reformer. 
And John Wycliffe was not the first star, morning star. There actually was another one that nobody talks about. I've asked a number of people, even today in our church, have you ever heard of this person or heard of these people? He said, no, I've never heard of them in my whole life. Some of you may have, and you're blessed if you have. But 300 years before Martin Luther even came on the scene, there was a man who appeared on the scene in the city of Lyon, southeast France. He was already publicly protesting the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. These were strong tremors that were going to bring about eventually the earthquake of the Reformation. He began to address these issues and to launch what we would know today as the very beginnings, the precursors of the Reformation. And his name was Peter Waldo. Peter, we don't, we don't know for sure if his name was Peter. We don't know that until 150 years after his death that that was his name. Uh, the word Waldo comes from the Latin Waldez or Valdez. Um, we don't know a whole lot about him other than perhaps maybe he was born between 1205, 1207, some say. There's some debates on that. We don't know for sure exactly when he died. Some say later on in 1215, 1218, depending on when you place his birth. The point is, is that there were a number of things that began to address him or, or shake him up. In 1170, this man was a very wealthy merchant, very, very wealthy. In fact, uh, he was known to be a very, very rich man. He had a wife and two daughters, lots of property. Some believe that something dramatic happened in his life, that there was one occasion where a man came by singing a particular song, spiritual song, and that that affected him. Others say that what really affected him was a friend of his dropped dead in front of him. It shook him up so much that he said, I need to find out about the condition of my soul. Most amazingly, because of the wealth that the man had, he hired two people to translate the Bible out of the Latin Vulgate into French. Now, this is before John Wycliffe. So he has the money to hire some translators. They get the Latin Vulgate. They translate it into French so that he can read the Bible. He starts to read the Bible, and now he's even shook up more. He wants to know how it is that the, he can be saved and his soul can be saved. He goes to his priest because he's still Roman Catholic at this time. He goes to his priest and the priest points out a verse in Luke eleven twenty two: One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You know what he did? Gave up all of his riches, gave up all of his wealth, supplied his wife and his two children with enough to live on, left everything he had and became a preacher in the streets to the poor people. He began to preach and people were saved, most of them poor, in the streets. They became the followers of Waldo, or some called them the poor of Leon. And the movement spread, more and more were saved. Eventually they were known as the Waldensians. These people were amazing because whenever you read about their history, right at the very beginning of that, they were primarily Roman Catholic. But as they began to learn the scripture and learn what God's word said, they began to stand against the practices and the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. So much so, let me tell you a couple of their beliefs. They believe that the scripture alone is the authority. They rejected any other mediator between God and man other than Jesus Christ. So Mary wasn't a part of it. 
They rejected the doctrine that only the priest could hear the confessions, that this was something every believer could do. They rejected purgatory and rejected indulgences and the prayers for the dead. They believed that the scripture only sanctioned two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They rejected the church's emphasis on fasting and feast days and eating restrictions. They rejected the priestly and monastic caste system and they rejected veneration of the relics and pilgrimages and the uses of holy water. They rejected the Pope's claim to authority over earthly rulers and they eventually rejected apostolic succession of the Pope. Now as a result of this, (laughs) you shouldn't be surprised, they were persecuted and persecuted immensely. There was one occasion where some of the Roman authorities came in and took a thousand of men, women, and children up on a precipice of one of the higher mountains. They usually were in the Alps of Switzerland there. And they were taken up on this high mountainous area. You can even look it up online. You can see where they put a memorial there. And they threw them all off. Killed them. They would go into the little towns of the poor villages of the Waldensians and they would slaughter them. Slaughter them. But they believed these truths. They were really the precursor to the Reformation. They were the precursors to men like John Wycliffe. And finally, there was one last attempt to exterminate them, to get rid of them. And that was in 1655. One last attempt to rid the planet of the Waldensians. And there was a very interesting situation where the Duke of Savoy carried out his notorious massacre of the Waldensians at this time in Piedmont in northern west Italy on April 24th, I believe it was, at 4 a.m. in the morning. The soldiers that had come into the little towns where the Waldensians were, they were given the signal to begin the assassination. They had come in under the guise of friendship. They literally stayed with the Waldensians for two days. They ate with them. They sat down with them at their tables. They fellowshiped with them, they talked with them, they slept in their homes. But after the second day at 4 a.m., the signal was given to kill them all. And they did. In fact, a thousand assassins began their work of death. I read an article on that very subject, and I have it here quoted in my notes just so I can keep it straight. I barely can make it through it this morning emotionally just because of how horrible it really is. And I'll read it to you. It says, The little children were torn from the arms of their mothers and dashed against the rocks. More horrible still, some of the soldiers would take the children and hold them with their limbs as they cried and had quivering limbs and would rip them asunder. They would throw their bodies into the highways and the fields. Sick persons and old men and old people and women were burned alive in their own houses. Some of them were hacked into pieces. Some were bound up into the form of a ball and thrown over some mountainous region to die. Some were slowly dismembered. Fire was applied to their wounds to desensitize them to the bleeding so that they could suffer even longer. Some of them were filleted alive. Others were roasted alive. Some were disemboweled while they were alive. Others were boiled alive. And some of the assassins ate their brains These were the people who stood for the very truths that you and I hold dear today. They were slaughtered for the light 
that they had. I want to tell you some good news, though. The light was not extinguished that day in 1655. Think of it like this. Whenever the assassins came in to get rid of the Waldensians one last time, in 1655, the Puritans had already been in America for 35 years. The light was shining brilliantly, moving forth with great, great power. One last verse and one last quote. The last verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and following. The Bible says, but even, in, even if our gospel is hidden or veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Paul admits the gospel is veiled. Yes, it is. It is hidden. It's hidden to the ones who are unbelieving and perishing. But he says, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ. He says, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. He's going back to the act of creation, that this is a creative act where God literally takes a very dark universe and he speaks forth and light comes. He compares that to the act of saving. This is what God does in regeneration. For it is the God, it says, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts, He's shown in our hearts, just as he did in creation, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This, as MacArthur rightly stated, states, is a sovereign work of God, of creation. Of creation. Listen, you know the truth today because God created light in you. He gave you the light. He opened your heart to the truth. Charles Wesley would have wrote a great hymn. Some believe he was obviously Wesleyan, Arminian, but he most likely was a closet Calvinist. The reason why we say that is because this verse is as straight up and down reformed as it gets. Listen to this verse that he wrote. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what happened to every one of us who know Christ. Amen? Folks, that's the heart of the Reformation. And that's what it's going to take for a Reformation to occur here. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, what a beautiful truth. We're amazed that you would take a sinner like us and save us. We're no better than anyone else in this world. We're not closer to you in any way because of our own righteousness. But Lord, you have brought us close through your Son. We thank you for your love for us from eternity past. We thank you, Lord God, for setting your love on us. Having known perfectly everything that we would do, say, and be. And Lord God, I thank you for sending Jesus Christ who is the perfect sacrifice, who died a complete and perfect death on the cross to satisfy your justice and lived a perfect righteous life in obedience to all of the law so that we could be made righteous in your sight by his righteousness and that we could be forgiven of our sin and taken to heaven. 
Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Help us, Lord, never to forget that all of this is by the very grace of God alone, not by our effort, our contribution, but only by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond together. Number 32, these great things.